You're listening to The Good Faith, a podcast dedicated to applying historic Christian thinking to today's issues of faith, family, books, and culture. With your host, pastor, parent, and perpetual student of theology and culture, Chad Graham. It seems odd to even have to defend the idea of a foundational set of beliefs for Christianity today. And yet it also seems necessary. And yet we run into these kind of conversations all the time where people say that there really is no authoritative, historic, orthodox core of Christianity. Or, or if there is, it's something superimposed on Christianity by the Emperor Constantine in some sort of imposition on the church. That's just a terrible argument. The church in the first few centuries was a small, isolated, persecuted sect that existed in diverse areas such as Africa and Asia and Europe. While there was, of course, communication between them, there wasn't the easy sort of communication or travel that we have today, and there was absolutely no authority whatsoever to control the thoughts and beliefs of the other groups. They could only persuade from Scripture and call to mind the historics of Christian orthodoxy. The historic core of orthodox Christianity was and is known as the rule of faith. And during that period of persecution and isolation, Irenaeus, Bishop of Léon, leader of the church in Léon, would write, although the, uh, which is uh, part of modern France, he would write, although the church is dispersed throughout the world, even to the ends of the earth, it has received this common faith from the apostles and their disciples. And then he goes on to write essentially what we find in the Nicene Creed, although uh, a few different words here and there. A short while after him, again, during the early years of the church, long before Constantine, Tertullian wrote, There is a particular and definite truth taught by Christ. This is what all are called to seek, so that once they have found it, they can believe it. He explains, the rule of faith is altogether one, alone immutable and irreformable. It is the rule of believing in only one almighty God, the creator of the universe, and in his son Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, raised on the third day, and so on. Again, just like the creed. This law of faith is constant, he writes. Athanasius, then around the time of Constant, after the time of Constantine, describes what happened at Nicaea, and he says, "When the fathers of the council of Nicaea wrote about the date of Easter, they prefaced their remarks with the word, "It seemed good to us." But when they wrote about the faith, they put, "Thus believes the Catholic or Universal Church," in order to show that their opinions were not something new but derived from the apostles. Now, where could this set of foundational beliefs come from? A set of foundational beliefs that existed centuries before Constantine. And a set of beliefs that existed through the time of Constantine. And a set of beliefs that stayed the same for centuries after Constantine, in fact, millennia. Well, if we go back right to Jesus in the New Testament, we see that he gathered around him the eleven disciples. In Matthew 28, verse 16. And when they saw him, the disciples worshipped him. And Jesus came and said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations, okay? Get followers all around the world. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the triune name of God. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is foundational in there is that God is seen as one in three. Baptized in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit belonging to each of them. And teaching all converts, all disciples, to observe all that Jesus taught are the method and means by which the original disciples and those that follow them were to make disciples of all nations. Writing to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says, Thanks be to God that you who were once the slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. Some translations translate that the form of doctrine, a standard or form or mold or set of teaching or doctrine to which you are committed and having thus been set free from sin have become the slaves of righteousness. Romans chapter 6 and verse 17 and 18. Writing to the Thessalonians in the second letter to that church, Paul says that he thanks God that they are saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And to this, that would be the truth and sanctification by the Spirit, he, that is God, called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, he concludes in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Here again is where a witness like Irenaeus comes into play in his wonderful book on the apostolic preaching. Irenaeus explains to us much about what the early church believed was the tradition of the apostles. He was a man who claimed as his teacher Polycarp. And Polycarp was in turn known by the apostles themselves. So we have a direct living link to the apostolic tradition. And he argues that we are saved by faith and that it is necessary for you and for all who are concerned about their salvation to make their way by faith without deviation, surely and resolutely, lest in slacking you remain in gross desires or erring wonder far from the right path. And then he says, Therefore, lest we suffer any such thing, we must keep the rule or canon of faith unswervingly and perform the commandments of God, believing in God and fearing him, for he is Lord, and loving him, for he is Father. The conservator, he says, of our faith, of our salvation is faith, and it is necessary to take great care of it that we may have a true comprehension of what it is. In the scriptures, of course, faith is not a feeling, but trust in an object of trust. And so faith procures for us salvation when we trust in that standard of teaching to which we are committed, or when we hold fast to the tradition that had been delivered. That faith, he explains, is that which the elders, the disciples of the apostles, have handed down to us. Firstly, it exhorts us to remember that we have received baptism for the remission of sins in the name of God the Father, 
and in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was incarnate and died and was raised, and in the Holy Spirit of God, in that this baptism is the seal of eternal life and rebirth unto God, and that we may no longer be sons of mortal men, but of the eternal and everlasting God, and that the eternal existing God is above everything that is coming to being, and everything is subject to Him, and that which is subject to Him is all made by Him, so that God does not rule nor is Lord over what is another's, but over His own. And all things are God's, and therefore God is the Almighty, and everything is from God. Now we can trace the development of the rule of faith. From the relatively simple summaries that we find in the New Testament, such as 1 Corinthians 15, the baptismal formula from Matthew 28, and other places, to some of which I've quoted from Irenaeus. He has some clear and more complete statements. In his book Against Heresies, another brilliant writing by Irenaeus, he explains the faith received in common from the apostles and their disciples is this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the sea, and everything that is in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed the divine dispensations to the prophets, including the advents, the birth, the, from a virgin, the passion, the resurrection from the dead, and the bodily ascension into heaven of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord, as well as his future coming from heaven in the glory of the Father, when he will gather all things in one, and to raise up again all flesh of the human, whole human race, in order that every knee should bow and every tongue confess to Christ Jesus, our Lord and God, our Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, that he should execute righteousness, a righteous judgment toward all, that he may send the spirits of wickedness and the angels who transgressed and became apostates, together with the ungodly and unrighteous, wicked and profane among human beings into everlasting fire. But in the exercise of his grace may grant immortality to the righteous and holy and to those who have kept his commandments and persevered in his love and may clothe them with everlasting glory. Then he says something very, very important. As I have already observed, the church has received this preaching and this faith even though it is scattered throughout the world, and carefully preserves it intact as if it were a living house. The church believes these doctrines as if, it had only, as if it had only one soul and one heart, and it proclaims them and hands them on in perfect harmony, as if it spoke with only one voice. The languages of the world may be dissimilar, but the message of the tradition is one and the same. Just as the sun is the same wherever it shines, so is the preaching of the truth the same everywhere in the world, enlightening everyone who wants to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, some 200 years later, the Council of Nicaea would summarize essentially the same thing in what becomes known as the Nicene Creed. But while teaching the exact same truths, they adapted some of the language and wording and phraseology in order that it might properly address the current generation of people and what they needed to understand about the truth. And that's true in any generation. The truth needs to be restated in clearer ways and ways that interact with our own particular culture and language use. Now I think it's accurate to say that the creed can be broken down into five fundamental components even though it comes in three articles. An article on God the Father, an article on the Lord Jesus Christ, and an article on the Holy Spirit. Under God the Father we learn that we believe in one God and His nature as Creator. But then we say we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. And that's an important point to which we then emphasize that we believe in the crucified and risen 
Lord. This is a whole second section on him. We believe in him and what he is in his nature, but then we believe in him as Savior. And then the church professes that we believe in one Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, and who he is. And then the creed says that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That is, that we believe that there is one body of Christ that is composed of saints. It is the universal church that has existed in all times and all places where Christ's Spirit has been. And it is apostolic in the sense that it is passed on from the apostolic tradition, fundamentally, of what is found in the New Testament and summarized in the creeds. The excellent resource by University Press, put together by Thomas Oden, the Ancient Christian Doctrine series, divides the creed in just such a five-fold division. Over the last few episodes of this podcast, I've been looking at some of the ways in which the wisdom of the ancient church really impacts and affects some of the thinking that we have today and provides answers for some of our toughest questions. What I want to do in the next couple of episodes is go through those five points and really show how the creed is just simply an explanation of what's in the Bible and why it is then helpful in order to give to believers in order for them to understand in summary form what the scripture teaches. It's more though than just simply a compilation of phrases from the Bible. It's an intentional way of looking at and organizing the content of scripture. And the claim, of course, is that it's organized according to what Jesus taught the apostles and the apostles handed down. By no means does it claim to be comprehensive and teach everything that Jesus taught. It's simply a summary of the foundational truths that need to be understood for a person to be identified as Christian. And then, of course, as Jesus said in the Great Commission, we are to teach people to obey all the things he commanded. The Apostle Paul writes in the Pastorals to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Paul is perhaps the best example of that, as he declared to the Ephesian elders, the same church to which he directed Timothy to preach the word, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Thank you for listening to the Good Faith Podcast. For more episodes, related articles, and additional information, visit chadwgraham.com. For resources related to the topics in this podcast, or for more episodes, visit chadwgraham.com. There you'll find the Good Faith site, where I have uh, other writings in which I explore various things in faith, family, books, and culture in both audio and article resources. My quotations from the early church fathers come from the Ancient Christian Doctrine series, edited by Gerald Bray and Thomas Oden. The Nicene Creed is readily available online.
The music that we have been enjoying in the background comes from the Tudor Consort and their track Curia Laison, which is protected under a Creative Commons copyright license, which allows use with attribution.